Hello. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're off to, yeah, we're off to a wonderful start for the year. It's great. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Hello, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast on the Movie John Network with a bunch of your friends, a bunch of the coolest people you know in Philadelphia. Um, I am here with my Butter co-hosts, Dave, Connor, and Christine, and we are recording the, the first episode of 2022. Woo! Yay! Hey. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I'm so happy to be starting another year with you all. Um, of course, we're doing this over Zoom because Corona still is ruining everybody's life. But at least we get to have this bright moment, right? So we are starting a brand new year with a brand new theme. And this theme is pretty cool, pretty magical. It's magic. Um, my pick for this month is Mary Poppins. And we'll get to that soon. But checking in with my buttermates here. Um, how you doing? Have you seen anything cool lately? I am doing all right. It's been a few weeks since I've been on. December was a totally nutso month, more so than I thought it would be. So I miss you guys and listeners terribly. So I'm glad to be back. Um, the biggest movie I want to report on is that I saw Spider-Man No Way Home Yay! over the holiday and absolutely loved it. I don't know. It's hard to tell, you know, if it's recency bias or, you know, it, like it's I'm curious to see how this movie will hold up as time goes on and kind of more Spider-Man movies come out. But kind of at first blush coming out of it, I I really loved it. And it was one of those movies where if you gave me 10 minutes to go to the bathroom and like get popcorn, I would sit again for another viewing, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably some of the strongest praise you can give a movie. So definitely recommend seeing it. You've probably seen all the spoilers by now, but it's still worth um, it reminds me of why the theatrical experience can be so powerful mm-hmm. when a group of people are cheering or you're all collectively experiencing a moment. Yeah. Connor, I saw Spider-Man too. I actually saw it twice. Um, I loved it so much. I think in the group chat, I was like, it was a masterpiece and it really was. Um, I don't think that there has ever quite been a superhero movie at the very least that was 20 years in the making. And this one was, and it was just you know, a movie for fans. Um, and I really felt like that. And, you know, I remember when Endgame came out and um, the directors, the Russo brothers and the writers, they were all like, yep, this is a love letter to fans. And I was like, I, I don't think so. Um, this this felt like that. It felt what like Endgame was trying to do for people. I think it's crazy that Spider-Man can have the same power as the Avengers does still, you know, throughout decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Um, can have this pull that and the fact that it's already you know it made a billion dollars at the box office in the first like week and a half i think 11 days um, yeah, it's like the it's, 12th biggest movie of all time as far as gross goes so far yeah and it's probably going to pass the last jedi by the time next weekend rolls around so in terms of top grossing um so it's just cool that spider-man is as big as avengers and it's a reminder oh yeah this thing is still incredibly popular um and this movie it's great when a good movie does really well that's always good to see yeah definitely um well the movie i have to report is that i saw the new matrix and i know it's been a very divisive topic not only within this group but also all of my like friends and people i've been talking to i will say that i enjoyed it quite a bit and um that i thought that There's definitely some rehashed elements, some elements that don't work. It ain't perfect, but I 
thought that they were trying something different and that I like how it kind of sidelines Keanu in an interesting way, even gives us, or Neo, but it still gives us some uh, wonderful Keanu Reeves. And maybe we'll, maybe in, on an, in another day, we'll dive deep into, into the, the Matrix, but maybe it was the mood I was in when I watched it, but I had a good time and that's all I'll say about it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to save my thoughts for another day on that subject. <laughs> Too many to, to to rehash right now. Can I ask you two questions? Do I need to see two and three to see Resurrections? Or should I just still avoid them like Dave, you instructed me to? Um, and does it feel like this movie exists because John Wick was really popular and those movies are awesome? Or does it feel like this is really trying to genuinely and creatively do its own thing instead of just making money because Keanu's hot again? Well, he was always hot, but box office hot again. I mean, they've been approaching the Wachowskis, the Warner Brothers, for a long time since it really kind of since the last one, like uh, supposedly like every other year or so checking in and being like, hey, I mean, it's the Matrix. You want to do another one? And they've roundly denied the opportunity until now. But uh, in answer to the first question, I would suggest that it's probably best to go ahead and watch them. Yeah, it, it does directly correlate and connect to material from those other two movies. I would argue that you don't necessarily have to watch the two because what I thought many perceived as just like a reha- like rehashing and literal recreations or playbacks to the scenes from the first one that it was kind of being it was repetitive and kind of spinning its wheels. I haven't seen Matrix 3. I hadn't seen Matrix 2 in like for like I didn't even bother and really what I was focusing on was having recently seen and talked to really extensively with you guys about matrix one and then going straight into this movie. And I thought it was quite an interesting pairing because I sort of saw it as like an acknowledgement. There's some, there's some sort of meta stuff going on, sort of, you know, people would argue whether it's effective, but there's sort of this tongue in cheek recognition of like, what this matrix is trying to do. They sort of take this concept of like a reboot and actually incorporate it into the story without giving much away. But I think that they, they fill in things as reminders to people who might not have seen it in a really long time and need a quick pick, uh, a quick uh, re- refresh. And I, I thought they incorporated it pretty, pretty well. I get, well, uh, yeah, I agree. You can, you can go into it without, necessarily having to see them it just enhances some things in the movie because it does reuse some characters that are exclusively in those sequels i thought there were some really really great extensions and world building details and i will again we'll wait till it's far removed from the release so that we can start talking about spoilers and stuff like that but it's not perfect but there's some details in there that I thought elevated a lot of the themes that weren't fully fleshed out in the previous ones. So, but in one very key detail, it is not riding on the wave of John wick and I won't specify, but there's a very intentional decision that I think answers that question for you, Connor. Cool. Thanks for those thorough answers. Well, I made it to the, uh, the movies recently to the Ritz back again which is nice, although, you know, inherently stressful currently. But uh, I was able to make it out to see P.T. Anderson's new offering, Licorice Pizza, 
which has gotten a whirlwind of praise um, and some interesting criticism. I feel that I definitely uh, rest my hat somewhere in between those two stances. I think it's a very complicated film for him, intentionally so, but in some interesting ways uh, that challenge my former notions in defense of his work as far as uh, accepting uh, accepting the, the presented morality of a period piece rather than modern moralizing applied to it. But that gets to be intentionally tricky in this movie in some interesting ways, I think. Um, so it's a pretty mixed bag. Obviously, it's PTA, so it's gorgeous. And it really moves along in an interesting clip and has some really wonderful side characters. I really am not sure how to feel about the central the central relationship in the movie. Obviously, he's really kind of been exploring power dynamics within complex relationships for a while now in his filmography. But uh, this one is, yeah, it's it's tricky, and I think uh, not accidentally. I think it's it's it, it invites some complex conversation between notions of tenderness and sentimentality and discomfort. So, an interesting movie for sure. Wow, thanks everybody. Um, going from something that sounds very very complicated to something that <laughs> not quite. Um, so our new theme is magic and i picked mary poppins um, mary poppins was really the first thing that popped into my mind when we were discussing this theme on uh, or over texts for a lot of reasons um so for those of you who have not seen mary poppins let me give you a little little background little details so mary poppins came out in 1964 director was robert stevenson screenplay screenplay by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady. And it's based somewhat loosely on the first novel in the Mary Poppins series by P.L. Travers. It stars, of course, Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, David Tomlinson, Glynis Johns, Karen Dutrice, and Matthew Garber, and a lot more. The budget was about $6 million. And at the box office, it made $1.3 million, which in our money is close to a billion today. So a classic, an instant success, a blockbuster, if you will. Um, so a synopsis background. Uh, when Jane and Michael, the children of the wealthy and uptight Banks family are faced with the prospect of a new nanny, they are pleasantly surprised by the arrival of the magical Mary Poppins. Embarking on a series of fantastical adventures with Mary and her cockney performer friend, Bert, the siblings try to pass on some of their nanny's sunny attitude to their preoccupied parents. I stole that synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes, God bless, doing the Lord's work out there. And I have a little bit more background here just because I found it interesting. Um, and it really is why I decided to pick this film too. So Disney tried to purchase the film rights from PL Travers, uh, Travers several times over a 20 year period, starting as early as uh, 1938. Travers absolutely refused because she didn't think that a film could do her books justice, which I mean, you know what, know what you're worth. Damn right. Um, she finally acquiesced, though, in 1961, but only if she had script approval rights, um, saving Mr. Banks starring Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. 
um, is a really beautiful film about this experience. It's like over dramatic. It's dramatized, of course, but I still recommend you see it. It's it's heartwarming. It made me cry, but I cry over everything. So <laughs> it's not really good gauge there. It seems that Travers had a lot of misgivings about Disney's choices, even when it came to Julie Andrews. But I mean, you can't argue with the numbers. You can't argue with success. Uh, Mary Poppins became an instant classic, receiving 13 Oscar nominations and won five. Um, best Actress, Best Film Editing, Best Original Music Score, uh, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Song. Um, in 2013, Mary Poppins was selected per, for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Um, it's also the only movie that has never been out of print. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. <laughs> yep. Wow. Huh. For this one movie, Disney was like, there's no vaults. Everyone gets to have it. <laughs> God, remember the Disney vault? That shit sucked. What was the Disney? What's the Disney vault? So when movies would come out on VHS, they'd be like, you only have a certain amount of time to get this before it goes into the Disney vault. And then you couldn't get it. I I feel like we talked about this during like animation month or something like this. Yes, I do remember this concept. It's fucked up, but it worked. There are still some movies that are hard to get your hands on. Anyway. so this was no one's first watch, right? Oh yeah, I'd seen it many, many times. <laughs> this is my first watch as an adult. <clears throat> okay. And as someone who's like aware, yeah, like thinks critically about cinema. And um, <laughs> I probably have seen it a few times as a kid, but uh, my first viewing as someone who thinks about movies in an adult way, I guess is how I it. Okay. Connor, that's a really great point. I mean, so what did you folks think about the movie um, before you rewatched it for the podcast and now after, has your opinion changed at all? This was uh, one of my mom's favorites. So it was on a heavy rotation in our household. Uh, my sister also really glommed onto it and is a big fan. Uh, I always found it to be, yeah, very enchanting and pretty magical, the way that it rolls on, the way that it has this momentum of different songs and set pieces sewn into each other and different visual spectacles that it, it neatly sees us through with a really nice unity like as a kid, it all it all melded together really beautifully and really magically, you know, apropos of uh, our theme. Uh, as an adult, uh, it's definitely showing a little bit of its age as far as some of like, say, the green screen effects and things like that. But not in a way that I hold against the movie at all, because this is a film from 1964. It really holds up tremendously. And uh, I think it was perhaps a little bit longer and slower than I had recalled, but I still really enjoyed it. Yeah, totally. Two hours and like 20 minutes. That's crap. That's crazy. I didn't remember this movie being that long. Thanks. I was definitely never thought I had that. I was like, I was, that's just like moved. But then, well, I guess maybe also like watching something to then talk with you guys. It's like, instead of letting it just like wash over me, I have to like, there, I sometimes feel like I have to be kind of noting all the moments and maybe that's what made it feel a little bit longer on this uh, rewatch. I also think that sometimes my opinions about movies we watch for the podcast are also shaped a lot about things that I'm watching recently. And maybe I should have at the beginning of the podcast also mentioned another new movie that I watched recently, which was uh, called the lost daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut with like Olivia Coleman. I think it's based on like a, an Elena Ferrante m- book or whatever. Anyhow, the whole thing about that movie is all about like motherhood and obligations tied up in 
the perf- in the in motherhood and sort of what is asked of mothers and their and how does that shape their relationship with children and so I had just seen this like yesterday and then I was like watching Mary Poppins and all I could think about was kind of the interesting depictions of of motherhood and relationships with children and what's uh what are sort of depicted as strong like uh sort of a functional family and not a functional family and like what is asked of mothers and like, how are they depicted through with, yeah, just so I, that was sort of swirling all throughout my head. So it'd be, I'd be really interested to to hear your thoughts about those aspects, but that was kind of, yeah, what was going on in my brain as I was, as I was watching. And also, as Dave said, a reminder of how visually it's so, so stunning. And as you pointed out in your notes, Sam, the blend of live uh, live action and animation is is even by today's standards unbelievable. Yeah, I think I I realize I haven't shared what I actually think of the movie. As a kid, I I guess I liked it. I don't really remember. I guess I must have only seen the first half a few times, like on TV or something, because I remember the back half. I don't really remember. Yeah, I remember like the Tim Chimchurri song, but like that just, I don't, I don't really remember the back half of the movie and when Mr. Banks goes back to the bank at the end. Uh, so I was really. I think impressed with a lot of the visuals and how it was shot, especially the animation live action combo. It's just so impressive. Even in 2022, I don't know if I like this movie as like a plot and structure and as like, you know, we're telling a story with characters, but I don't think it's too concerned with that. Like, I don't think that's its main goal. I think its goal is kind of spectacle is to be charming is to tell this sort of family story. And we have this kind of loose plot that ties these scenes together and these songs together. When the movie is firing on all cylinders, it's incredibly charming and incredibly impressive when it's not for me, it kind of drags, especially in the beginning before Mary Poppins arrives. I feel like we get like three songs in a row that I can't even remember a single word about. (laughs) Um, so I think it's definitely recommend revisiting as an adult, but I will not, I, I don't think I can say I loved this movie, but incredibly impressed uh, with what they were able to pull off in 1964. Thanks everybody. Um, Connor, your comments, I think PL Travers would agree with you 100%. She'd be like, yeah, I was right about that. And this and that too. So yeah, I, I definitely can can hear that a lot. I mean, you know, did this movie, maybe the the special effects, but like, does it age well? Like, is this something that, um, would you want people to still watch this movie? Like if you were to have a a child or um, like a younger cousin, would you share this with them? Like, should it stay classic? I would say, I I would say yes. I think, uh, especially if you're growing up in America, you kind of like Western culture, uh, Mary Poppins is incredibly influential. It feels like every couple of scenes, there's an iconic cultural moment of the 20th century that kind of like triggers nostalgia, like triggers a part of your brain. It's like, oh, I recognize that. I think it's really charming. I think, yeah, the songs I think are still by the Sherman Brothers. There's still some really classic songs in here. So I think as like a historical fi- you know, film of like a you know, very historic importance, I think of visuals on its own, the songs, I think it's still a relevant movie today. And it was interesting, as Christine, you brought up to think about 
I probably weren't thinking about all these parental dynamics in 1964, but Sam in your notes, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it is a very kid-focused film about how kids feel, about how kids live in this, you know, kind of living in this world, this Edwardian um, society and the role that parents play. It doesn't dig too deep, but I think it's impressive the themes that it's kind of trying to tackle. And then especially at the end, the role that a nanny plays and, you know, how should these kind of other parental-like figures feel in these lives, especially as she kind of heals the family together. I thought that was an interesting kind of bittersweet note to end the movie on. So I think it's definitely probably a really cool movie for younger kids. I don't think my little sister's six. I don't think she's ever seen it. Um, so I'd be curious to watch it with her um, to kind of see her reaction to it. I also think I, we talked a lot about this when we did Who, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it's kind of an interest, interesting time or like an interesting movie on the timeline of the advancements in weaving, as I had said, like live action and animation. And certainly Who Framed Roger Rabbit was filmed in a period where they had already moved well beyond just doing animation and live action. But in the early 1960s, the color, like the, the sort of intentional trickery and the sort of, visual splendor of a, of like painting and pastels and and not being like we're trying to use animation to create something that's supposed to be lifelike but like an intentional melding of worlds of drawn worlds of live worlds it's just it's a wonderful movie to look at in that timeline of like film developments and technique developments and as Dave said, there are definitely some moments that <laughs> don't look as good as others. But in in the theme of Magic Month, I thought, uh, Sam, this was such a great pick because you also have – so you have that sort of visual magic and trickery. And then you have that, like, practical magic, too, where she's pulling stuff out of – the suitcase and like one would see in a magic show, you see the kids underneath the table, like looking up and that's sort of a wonderful visual cue to, to suggest, yeah, this, this is magic. Like there's nothing underneath the table. How is this scene staged? And so it really excites, I don't know, it excited me to think through like how the production team would have thought through this particular scene. And, uh, and I think Julie Andrews performance is so strong in that she is a perfect pick for something that requires almost sleight of hand and sort of, you know, a, a presence uh, like when she's talking to the parrot umbrella and she's pulling stuff out of the bag. One thing I will note is I, I, it's like, there are three songs from this production that I remember. And then the rest, I was like, I've never <laughs> like seen these in other content. Like I would say this music is memorable in its really memorable moments. And then <laughs> As it was mentioned, some of the other, the talk singing of Mr. Banks, I was like, I don't know any of these numbers. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think it's a classic. I mean, it's definitely, it, it, it's, it, it is a movie for kind of like all ages in terms of having big themes. It is a story that is in part from the children's perspective. Although I do find the children individually to be pretty underbaked as characters. They, you know, it, it seems as though the big message is that we should, uh, as Sam, you've noted, is like we should pay more attention to and listen to children and receive what they have to tell us. But these kids just sort of seem to want attention and not really explain who they are beyond that. 
which I, I found to be a little bit of a trapping. But then again, if it is a movie that is holding a kid's attention in that regard, it's still going to keep you going, I think. Uh, as an adult, though, it definitely has a lot of really interesting themes as far as um, how Poppins and uh, how Bert influenced their surroundings because it's it's a movie where, you know, she is is kind of a force of magic that he himself is also has experienced and is self-aware of and it's enlightened him. So they as a team sort of sow in seeds of not even, well, I mean, there's outright magic, but also in a bigger sense, like, you know, a sense of, just, you know, everyday kind of existential magic connection to other people, uh, not focusing so much on, uh, you know, workaholic capitalist, uh, completely monetized lifestyle. So it's got a lot of big themes that it works with on all sorts of different levels with all sorts of different characters. And I think makes it, you know, something that obviously kids can be drawn to both in terms of, as Christine, you were mentioning, this really graceful harmony of visual effect and animation and what they're actually what the actors themselves are actually doing both all of whom really nail it in this movie um but also it has a lot that adults can tackle in terms of a criticism of uh of not only that era but just you know i don't know a lot of western ideas in general it's a pretty transgressive disney movie in a lot of ways which is really cool yeah, thank you, Dave. Yeah, so much of what you said, um, I thought were like the major pullouts of this movie and that I wanted to talk about. So, you know, I picked this for magic because of obviously Mary Poppins, but for that everyday magic that you mentioned and the the incredible cinematography that we've talked a lot about already, but just also in general, um, quote unquote, the Disney magic. And um, you know, Dave, what you were talking a lot about was, you know, this this overall character of Mary Poppins and she's like magic incarnate. But, you know, something that really took me was just how quickly everyone else, particularly the children, were able to access their own type of magic. I mean, she's <laughs> like singing that tidy up song and then like they immediately start snapping and they're able to do it. And, you know, I wonder how we're supposed to interpret that. Like, does her magic rub off or is this more like a symbolic notion of just, you know, when you when you think about the fun you can have, when you when you actually focus and are mindful, um, you, you do create your own kind of magic. And I was wondering what you think. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely both. I mean, it's, you know, it it, it uses wonderful like practical effect magic to illustrate a, a metaphorical sense of like enlightening people to appreciating their surroundings with a little bit more depth and a little bit more uh, curiosity and imagination. Uh, so to see it, you know, portrayed both as tangible magic and as the magic that that idea is, uh, I think it works together really well, even if it is a lot of like just a reverse shots of people knocking things over for a while. <laughs> I love that of like they're holding book like in when they're filming it they hold books and then dump them but then when you film it you rewind it and they're catching it like mm -hmm. so i think it also operates too on as christine was bringing up this like cinematic magic of like this is i don't know it's not too hard to create magic like in our minds on screen and just i love the moment where the kid's stuck in the closet and it just keeps opening and closing on him like there's just the physical the physical timing of the performances and the physical comedy um it's just really stellar and i mean dick van dyke i assume we're going to talk about his performance is just um a whirlwind a truly phenomenal uh performance who i think for me personally really carried the film and carried my attention um through some of the slower parts and i was losing a little interest his involvement with mary poppins and the kids lives his performance i think is just really 
really outstanding. And he has two performances. He's also the uh, old curmudgeon banker, the head of the uh, bank. Oh, I didn't even realize that. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, I never knew that as a kid, as an adult. I was like, oh, my God. And yeah, they, they're they a fantastic pair. Andrews has charm for Miles, not only as a singer, but just, you know, as an actress. Um, also, one really neat thing is that uh, during the Spoonful of Sugar song, that Robin, that animatronic, obviously animatronic, but charmingly animatronic Robin that rests on her fingers uh, as she's singing, it does sort of a musical duet with her singing and the Robin uh, whistling, or, you know, well, the Robin singing, but it's someone whistling. That was her doing the accompaniment as well. So it's her doing a duet with herself. <laughs> Really, really kind of like showing off and chewing the scenery a little bit in a fantastic way. Uh, yeah, Van Dyke is magnetic and a natural showman. And the written chemistry between the two characters is really, really fantastic, I think. So as a pair, yeah, they they crush it. But as does everyone in the movie, I think. There was something interesting, I think, in their relationship of that they know each other. Like this is not Mary Poppins is some alien force come to terrorize the parents of London. It's like she's this presence, but she's known. And there's this kind of, I guess, like lifting of the veil that these magical elements are there all around us. Like Uncle Albert kind of like floating in what reminds you of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a little bit. Mm. Um, and so it's this magic is all around the kids, but they just need somebody to show them that this magic exists. I thought. That's just a really, I thought their relationship kind of really sets up that idea of, you know, she's here, these forces are here, this is not some mystical presence that's invading, it's present all around us. That was something also really quickly I'd entirely forgotten about was how this movie begins with Bert, with these customized greetings for all the solicitors walking in the park and it's this one man band performance and it's entirely charming. But then he's kind of cut off by this realization of like, he he's it's like... Bert sense is tingling that he just popping sense is just like he looks off into the distance and becomes very self-serious and it's just like well I'll be here she comes and then it does this really cool thing where it breaks the fourth wall where he turns to the camera and says oh it's you and greets us as viewers which like invites us into a world where this kind of magic is clearly coming and is clearly possible it's really a really amazing way to open the movie right and it never happens again <laughs> no but you've already been welcomed you can accept the rest yeah. you don't need an epilogue I don't think <laughs> Yeah. And you know, like Bert knowing about magic and having a little bit of his own is why I'm so convinced that Disney, for all of their faults, does a really wonderful job of knowing that their audience is twofold, right? You have the the centering of children and their voices and their stories, but then you also have the adults who are watching it with them. And, you know, I, for me, watching Bert, knowing he still has access to his magic, and it might not be as good as Mary Poppins, um, but he still knows about it and he still has it, was just a, a nice reminder for me to be like, hey, step back, hit pause, remember the good stuff around you too. And I can't remember what book I was reading, but the opening was something along the lines of, this book is dedicated to all the the women who um, forgot magic but are coming back to it. It remembers you too. And it's just really nice to be like, you know what? It, it doesn't have to die. This, this spirit of magic and wonder doesn't have to go anywhere just because I'm an adult and I pay taxes. And kind of sewing in ideas that it develops throughout too in that way, like the, sim the simple joy of like the promised joy of flying a kite is how the movie kind of begins they've run off they have this kite that's damaged and they come back and they're they're shouted at for it because the parent while the parents have been away this is you know has been the nanny's responsibility that the nanny's fed up so they got out and then 
the response of the parents is, you know, to criticize them, you know, sneaking away to do this it's juvenile thing while they're wrapped up in their own lives. I mean, the mother is a suffragette, which is interesting because like, it's a very cool idea, but apparently the idea was that she would be so preoccupied with that cause that she would be an unattentive mother, which isn't, is interesting, uh, I guess. The one with um, Mr. Banks is a little bit more like opaque and a little more traditional, just like capitalist uh, workaholic idea, but that they are kind of missing out on that, you know, that casual magic that, is so often seen through the eyes of children and their sense of wonder that when they do reconnect with the family at the end, it does a nice like elliptical bow of bringing it, what brings them together. Oh, they go and fly a kite. The thing that was initially a conflict at the beginning of the movie. So it does a really good job of like laying little seedlings of where these sort of uh, reprisals of uh, everyday magic uh, can occur. I am fascinated by Mrs. Banks because as Dave pointed out at the beginning, she throws open the door, comes home right after a suffragette rally and she's all pumped and she's dancing with the, uh, the cooks who come out to, you know, tell her that her parents are, or her children are lost or whatever. And, and yeah, I guess the subtext is like, (laughs) she, she's an inattentive mother because she's out and about, but then they completely sweep away or like that isn't even brought up through the whole rest of the movie until the final scene in which they are flying a kite. And she, she just ties the suffragette ribbon to the kite. And I was like, Oh, like maybe it's like a a wonderful suggestion that like, you know, like she, even she can achieve her dreams and be a part of, you know, something that's also sort of politically magical or it's, she's returned to, she's been brought back to the home now recognizing that her children are now, you know, pacified by Mary Poppins and the mother can take the place of Mary Poppins and like um, sort of retake on her her position as a mother. And and I think it's ambiguous. I think it's an interesting ambiguity there. I would. Yeah, I I, I was just sort of thinking about this and, and I found that. Yeah, I just found the Mrs. Banks character really, really uh, fascinating. And she also, like, is her husband's secretary, but at the same time, she's like, my husband's an idiot. And and I guess that's the wonderful complications of characters. It's like, um, but yeah, it was definitely something that was, uh, that I was very intrigued by. I think it's interesting, too, in the difference of, like, how they're brought back to the fold as, like, inspired, like, you know, magic-inspired, like, now family-centric kind of folks is, like... By contrast to that, she does the metaphorical like suffragette thing on the string, which could be interpreted, yeah, as either that cause soaring to greater heights or her surrendering it in service of returning to the home. Whereas Mr. Banks has just been like laid off by the bank. Like they bring him into like this eyes wide shut scene. It's so weirdly shot and like so abstract to be the rest of the movie. And then he gets fired, but then he like, you know, ultimately like criticizes like the very idea of like capital and sums and finances as like as illogical as the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And it's a really great, really great cathartic like resolution of that arc. But then, yeah, then when she's like kind of giving that up to return to the home, theoretically, he also gets his job back at the bank anyway. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. A little bit one-sided. It's so interesting because I don't feel that way at all. Um, And maybe this is because like I have seen Saving Mr. Banks and they do actually talk about Mrs. Banks as a character and how P.L. Travers was like, you cannot make her ditzy. You cannot make her neglectful because she wasn't that. 
Um, I was gonna, as far as ditziness, Sam. One thing I did really want to ask: Did you get like I did um, Rachel Vice Evie vibes from her at times in the beginning? Because I was definitely picking some of that up. I think. Oh yeah, and she's so incredibly smart. My what, so, something I love about her so much is that, like, you know, she clearly doesn't want to stay around all day and like hiring these mannies. It's a chore. She's like. Yes, you are just so much better at it than I am. Because, like, she's got other things going on. She doesn't want to do it. So she, like, tricks her husband into taking this over. Um, And meanwhile, he's like, yes, I'm the right person to do this. Only me. And she's like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, only you. (laughs) She's brilliant. She's brilliant. And the way that I see her with that suffragette flag is you know, something that happens that, that I hear happens when, when people become mothers is that they lose a sense of identity and they lose a sense of self and adding that suffragette flag to the, to the kite sort of says that like, this is a piece of her that she's saving or she's adding to the family. Like it's, it's, it's her. And instead of it being like a, it's like a mosaic, right? Like all of their individual pieces coming together. So the whole family's a united force, right? You have the the kids in the original kite, you have the father mending it to the best of his ability. And then you have something that she's passionate about included too. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like I, that I, more. <laughs> I, I love that uh, interpretation of the ending. I just, I wonder, because we're to assume that Mary Poppins, I mean, she comes, she operates in a manner of coming in, healing, and then extricating herself from the situation. And part of me was like, it would be so wonderful for them to all be a family or something, you know, or just like, part of me wonders, well, no, you know, she's like a therapist. She comes in, she helps, and then she doesn't have to be there forever. So yeah, I like that. I like that interpretation. Um, I wish that the mother had more singing numbers because I read in production notes that in order to get the actress, uh, Glynis Johns to do it, uh, they were like, you're going to have this opening number. And she apparently thought that she was going to be the star of the movie. (laughs) They're like, you're going to have this huge number. It's going to be a meaty role. But, and then, and they like took her out to lunch and like sort of told her that. And then, it got into production and she has, she has like a major song and then she kind of is gone for a lot of the movie. But, um, so I guess I just wanted some more numbers for Mrs. Banks. <laughs> well, and she was also the original <clears throat> Desiree Armfeld and a little night music sometime with ascending the clowns. That song was written for her. Um, so she's, you know, no, um, no, she knows her way around singing. So that's when I read that fact, I was like, Oh, it's a shame that they really didn't give her more numbers. But boy, is she a scene stealer in While You Were Sleeping. She's the, yeah, she's the grandmother. Yeah. Oh. I didn't know this until I was looking around. Circled back around. (laughs) Whoa. So maybe she gets her number, her big, her big numbers later on. (laughs) Christine, you just blew my mind. I did. And this did not appear to me. This, this was just doing a little research about her, but. Anyhow, yeah, it all comes full circle. <laughs> wow. 
the other things that I wanted to talk about when it comes to Mary Poppins, I think we um, already talked sort of at length about the cinematography and this combination of live action and animation, but is there anything else about the way that the movie was filmed or choreographed that you think is a bit magical? I love the detail. This is just one, yeah, a detail that stuck with me of when they're right. I guess the whole like horse sequence when they're on the carousel horses and the bobbing up and down and how they kind of like leave the uh, real carousel and how when it goes, when the pole goes into the dirt, you see scrape marks and like the grass and the dirt, just really so many details in these animated sequences that I think were just really impressive and no wonder why it like wowed audiences back in 1964 and still continues to amaze just so many details especially the uh the menu when the penguins come out and it's like an animated menu but you it looks like they're looking at the real thing so it's just a great balance of like we talked about with roger rabbit of these real actors interacting with these animated creatures and items just so so much detail and so much precision in how it was filmed and designed yeah for me it's the the step in time dance all the way it's that's some fantastic filmmaking you get these Beautiful, really rendered, like really interestingly rendered, like smoke staircases that descend from the roof into another roof, which is an awesome effect. There's some really fantastic matte painting backdrops throughout that sequence that are really, really impressive. And then just the dance, like them all mounting that one railway, that one railing and like being really wobbly and like uneasy and unsure of their footing and then snapping right into perfect like kick choreography in like unison with each other. It's like a real, like, it's a true all-timer in the Disney history book because it's just incredible. And apparently they had to shoot it twice because there was a scratch on the film after they shot it the first time, so they had to redo the entire sequence. And also Mary Poppins, like, uh, and Andrews is, like, impossible, like, Matrix spin closer. And just that hold on her face, it, like, it's obviously, like, sped up and green screened on top of, like, the backdrop, but something about it is just, like, it feels like genuine magic. It's really an incredible little shot that makes this already great sequence so memorable. And the song, of course, is, is really fantastic. So all around, yeah, step in time for the win. I love that scene so, so much. Um, I was watching Mary Poppins over the weekend with my roommates and uh, one said she tried to learn that dance as a kid and she never could. <laughs> uh, she wanted I feel like to. I tried to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> For me, though, like the penguins and how Mary Poppins and Bert interacted with them, when Bert is dancing with the penguins and one's going over his leg over and over again, I was just blown away as a 30-year-old adult, like just how well that holds up. Yeah, definitely that penguin scene, especially when he takes the cane and pulls them off and the way it's perfectly animated to fit the contour of the cane. It, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it's it's like perfect. It's unbelievable. The last thing I wanted to talk about, we sort of already touched on, which is like just the general Disney magic. It's it's unfortunate that Disney, Walt Disney himself was kind of an a-hole and um the company has made some really terrible decisions especially lately when it comes to to labor and their workforce, but I still like can't deny the power that this this company this powerhouse has of creating just hit after hit for kids and i wonder like what you folks think about that like what is the disney magic what makes it so um what, what makes it resonate with kids and adults even to this day 
or 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 do you not think that there there's any Disney magic? Do you think it's not real? There's a, certainly an established uniqueness to Disney. Yeah, I mean, like in, in the way that I would uh, compare to things like Studio Ghibli or Don Bluth Productions and things like that. But I guess like like all inspiring uh, team efforts, uh, sometimes the figurehead is not the one that. It should be accredited for all the hard work. I think that Disney had a staple of brilliant animators, writers, and filmmakers at their disposal, uh, all of whom are kind of wrangled into an amazing stew of cooperation and teamwork that produced, you know, under Walt's uh, steady hand in terms of being able to select and, and groom talent. But as far as whether or not he rewarded that talent, it's a different story. But the talent is absolutely there in a majority of the things that they take on. So on the whole, yeah, Disney does have a very tangible magic to its many contributors, uh, I think, more than it does a brand per se. You know, like 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 all great American industries, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the workers who make it great. And uh, Disney's a good example. <laughs> Your mention of brand, though, I think also plays into it. I think Disney has a very tight control and can afford to have very tight control over its brand, which I think serves it in that it sort of you can you can identify a Disney movie it has especially you know throughout its history whether it's narratively visually uh thematically and I thought I think they it's it's done an effective job as like a massive corporation to have yeah have a control over that brand but as Dave said because it's so big there it's able to really showcase the talent of all of the animators and the story writers and everything that there's something undeniably great about a lot of the Disney films and that have come out in the Disney, in the Disney brand. I, I guess I'm hoping that kind of like was, did Disney produce saving Mrs. or Mr. Banks? I've never seen it, but was that a Disney production? Yeah. And so I think what's, I I'll I'll speak speak more confidently like cuz I'm very curious and I want to go see it uh and and check it out but I think that approach of like Disney sort of creating movies that provide backstory insights into their own productions I feel like is an interesting route to take now to and I think because it has a tight control over its brand I think it'll only you relinquish so much control that it has uh, to really critically examine and analyze its own productions. But I would think and hope that it's brave enough to do that with a lot of, uh, of its vault, you know, and the things that are a part of the Disney legacy. Cause I think it is a fascinating production company and a fascinating sort of like cinema phenomenon. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it buys all the talent too. Once it got sp- swept Pixar under its rug. You know, it's like things kept getting better because it just kept buying everything. And Marvel and Star And Marvel, Wars. yeah. So I don't know. Disney's a complicated topic. Yeah. But there's definitely, I think, an undeniable magic, whether it's that money magic or or it's a whole complication of or complexity of things. You know what's not magical in this movie? Dick Van Dyke's accent. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. He has been voted like the worst British accent of all time. Um, he received a BAFTA, BAFTA award in uh, 2017. And he said, I just want to make this like my formal apology for this. And BAFTA was like, 
you know, in your acceptance speech, you can use whatever accent you want because you're Dick Van Dyke, but that's funny. Dick Van Dyke was uh, apparently, apparently very apprehensive about taking the part because he felt he couldn't pull off the accent. And then actually uh, what happened was he, was he he took on the role and then was so taken also by the bank manager, the elderly like head of the bank, the president of the bank, and how comical he found his character uh, that he offered to do the role for free. But then so I think if I remember correctly, even that wasn't quite enough. So Disney insisted that he pay to play the part a little bit. <laughs> But he does, uh, he does so to really great comic effect. I mean, like when that per- character first comes out and like is having like having difficulty like on that polished floor, like stabilizing himself with his cane and everything. It's it's pretty comical, and he really brings that uh, brings that to life. One thing also, really quickly, that I did th- find really charming about this movie is there's no true antagonist. Yeah. Um, I mean, by the end, like there there, uh, ever, there are antagonizing forces that are parts of people's personalities. There's um, you know, Mister Banks is kind of like money-driven mentality. There is, if you want to discredit her with anything, I suppose, uh, Mrs. Banks is uh, sort of in- investment in things that draw her away from her children, uh, which, you know, I don't think it's, uh, whatever. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, and the, even like the bank, like the crooked guys at the bank, like these sort of like very money-hungry capitalists who have insisted that human existence itself basically should be monetized as kind of the expression of like the whole song or like the one funny part of the song too is like them saying like son you should invest in the bank because it will provide uh railroads in africa and like they start naming all these like imperialist investments of like britain in the like 1940s and 50s as something to invest in which is really dark for a disney movie but but in the end like they're all broken by that like in the end you know, after Banks is fired and he, and he leaves, the head of the bank is so taken by his joke that he like, uh, like the uncle before, starts levitating because he's he's so appreciating this humor. And then at the end, after we find out that he, he like had a hard yuck and that wound up killing him, <laughs> it's like, no, don't worry, I'm his son. Don't worry about it. He died happy, and now we're all flying kites. And so like, it does like it does have obstacles, but no one is a villain by the end, which is really cool because everyone has been touched by Poppins's magic. Dave, if I if I could pick the way I die, it's going out with one big yuck. So thank you. <laughs> a leg named Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that point though. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, what? I also think that's a little part of like the Disney magic. Yeah, there usually are villains, but when it's a really family centric one like this, not, not so much. You'd have to take that up with Sleeping Beauty, I suppose. But OK, true. Any final words we want to say about Mary Poppins? It's a real treat. I was glad to go back to it. Yeah, you, you can see why this is one of the like Disney temples. It really has uh, everything, including... <laughs> Including a line in this Disney movie that is the Mrs. Banks excitedly saying, "Oh, you didn't commit suicide." <laughs> so it's it's really got a lot for all ages in terms of big themes, in terms of being uh, an accessible adventure for children that's visually spectacular and really kind of um, yeah, just a knockout across the board. Yeah, I think I think Dave, you really kind of summed up how I feel and I think why. Uh, folks should return to this movie if they haven't in a while, or why newer generations um, should go back and watch it. One fun fact I learned while just kind of looking up the movie is that the box office success of Mary Poppins allowed Walt Disney to buy uh, acres and acres and acres of land in Florida for Walt Disney World. 
Ah. So we can thank Mary Poppins for the exist partially for the existence of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Holy shit. Oh. Cause and effect, man. Cause and effect. <laughs> That's an interesting time wrinkle if Mary Poppins wasn't successful or PL Travers never sold the rights. You know, what would Florida look like? Or you what know, am I gonna do with all these swamps I bought? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, on that note, follow us on social media. We are at Butter With That on Instagram, Butter With That One on Twitter, Butter With That on Facebook, and then Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Catch us next week for another magical adventure. And have a great whatever. Bye.